You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the December 2021 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, we will begin with Dr. Joel Kremer, who is the first author of a paper entitled The Clinical Disease Activity Index and the Routine Assessment of Patient Index Data 3 for Achievement of Treatment Strategies, who will explain the rationale for this study. Yes, that's a good question. Um, You know, we've always been interested in metrics and which metrics best capture uh, legitimate patient outcomes. And I don't need to go over all the metrics that are available out there. There are certain ones that are used to get drugs approved by regulatory agencies. And then there are metrics that are hopefully more commonly used by clinicians as they care for patients. So they have a number with which they can assess disease activity and whether or not it might be appropriate to accelerate treatment in a treat-to-target regimen. So um, we just wanted many uh, themes of this nature that was swimming around in my head at one point, and we decided to do the study. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Kremer and that you will read the full-length article as well as the accompanying editorial entitled Definition of Treatment Targets in Rheumatoid Arthritis. Is it time for reappraisal? By Drs. Ricardo Ferrara, Robert Landaway, and Jose De Silva. The next paper to highlight is entitled as Etanercept Biosimilar Prescription in a rheumatology center, bend the medication cost curve, and is by Muskin and colleagues. This paper is accompanied by an editorial entitled Unraveling the Costs of Biological Strategies in Rheumatoid Arthritis, a Kaleidoscope of Methodologies, Interpretations, and Interests by Doctors Johannes Jacobs, Maxime Verhoeven and Paco Welsing. The major aim of this study was to determine how the introduction of an etanercept biosimilar influenced medication costs in patients with rheumatoid arthritis in a center in the Netherlands. The authors used data from 961 patients with rheumatoid arthritis studied at their center in order to determine how treatment costs over time, and in particular, how the cost of biologics and biologic usage changed over time after the introduction of an etanercept biosimilar. In the first two years of the study, all patients received etanercept brand, and in the second two years, all patients received an etanercept biosimilar. In the first two years, the cost of medications for the total population increased every three months, mainly as the result of an increase in size of the population, treated with only a slight increase in the cost and use of 
by Logic DMARD. Following the introduction of the Tanisep biosimilar, as may be expected, there was a significant decrease in total medication costs. However, after nine months, the total cost to the payer were the same as before the introduction of the Tanisep biosimilar. As a result of a further increase in the total RA population and importantly, because of an increased percentage of patients treated with the biologic DMARD, the bio, the Tanisep biosimilar. There was a slight decrease in the Tanisep biosimilar cost over time as compared to a slight increase in the previous two years in the cost of etanercept over time. Therefore, although the average cost per patient decreased with the introduction of a biosimilar, and this persisted over time, the total cost for the treatment of the total RA population to the payer increased as a result of the increased use of biologic DMARC. Please read this article in the accompanying editorial entitled Unraveling the Cost of Biologic Strategies in Rheumatoid Arthritis, a Kaleidoscope of Methodologies Interpretations by Drs. Jacobs, Verhoeven, and Welsing. By reading these, you'll get more details on how the introduction of a biosimilar was associated with lower cost, but that this, the biosimilar per se may increase biologic usage in patients with RA. Currently, it is unclear if patients with oligoarticular psoriatic arthritis, defined as less than or equal to four joints, differ from those with polyarticular disease and if there are any characteristics that can predict progression from oligoarticular to polyarticular course. In the next paper, I'll highlight, entitled Oligoarticular versus Polyarticular Psoriatic Arthritis, a longitudinal study showing similar characteristics by Gladman and colleagues will examine these issues. The authors found that 192 of 407 patients, or almost 50% of the patients, followed over four-year period, 40-year period, in a dedicated psoriatic arthritis clinic, had presented with oligoarthritis. At presentation, the demographic features of these 192 patients were similar to those with polyarthritis, as was the joint distribution between the two groups. However, dactylitis and enthesitis were more frequently found in patients with polyarthritis, and patients with polyarthritis had, a, as may be expected, a higher hack and a lower SF36 score. Over time, 117 of the 192 patients with oligoarticular arthritis, or 61%, remained oligoarticular, where 39% progressed to polyarthritis. 
the authors found that the only predictor for progression to polyarthritis was a lower SF36 mental component summary score. Specifically, there were no differences in the presence of dactylitis, enthesitis, axial disease, psoriasis area severity score, elevated acute reactants, or medication use, including the use of biologic therapies. Please read this paper to learn more about the disease course and the outcome of patients with psoriatic arthritis who present with oligoarticular arthritis. Multiple studies have examined risk factors associated with prevalent interstitial lung disease in patients with systemic sclerosis. In contrast, fewer studies have examined the risk factors for progression. But these studies have suggested esophageal dysmotility and esophageal diameter may be associated with radiographic interstitial lung disease. The next paper I'd like to highlight is entitled Esophageal Dilatation and Other Clinical Factors Associated with Pulmonary Function Decline in Patients with Systemic Sclerosis and is by Show Walters and colleagues. These authors examined clinical factors, including esophageal diameter, that were associated with decline in pulmonary function in patients with systemic sclerosis. The, third, the 138 patients studied all met the 2013 systemic sclerosis classification criteria and had at least one high-resolution CT scan and had pulmonary function tests performed at least twice. 72% of the cohort had evidence of interstitial lung disease, while 35% had a decline in their forced vital capacity after a median follow-up of 2.9 years. 11% of the population died. Investigators found that the presence of anti-SCL70 autoantibodies was associated with a decline in the percentage of predicted force vital capacity at one, two, three, and five years. Well, the force vital capacity was stable over these time periods in patients who did not have anti-SCL70 autoantibodies. Esophageal diameter on a high-resolution CT scan did not distinguish between those with and without a decline in a forced vital capacity. Although there was a statistically significant five-year predict, uh, percentage decline in predicted DCLO of 5.6% in patients with esophageal dilatation, this decline was not felt to be clinically significant. Similar analysis was shown that the subgroup of patients with radiographic interstitial lung disease, there was no associ significant association with esophageal dilatation. After reading this paper, you have a better understanding 
of factors associated with decline of pulmonary function over time in patients with systemic sclerosis and interstitial lung disease. Changing subjects, patients' perception of flare and treatment efficacy are important to determine when one is trying to predict and look at long-term gout flare prevention. In the next paper to highlight, Hollier and colleagues in their paper entitled, What Represents Treatment Efficacy in Long-Term Studies of Gout Prevention, an interview study of people with gout used semi-structured interviews of 22 patients with gout to answer the question of which factors contribute to patients' perception of treatment efficacy. Specifically, participants were shown different flare scenarios over a hypothetical six-month treatment period, which portrayed varying flare frequency, pain intensity, and flare duration. Investigators found that pain intensity, flare duration, and flare frequency all influenced patients' perception of treatment efficacy. Please read this article to find out more about what patients feel are important to them in gout flare prevention and treatment success. This month, the image in rheumatology is entitled, My Hips Hurt, an Unusual Presentation of Bilateral Growing Pain in an Adolescent Male. A 12-year-old boy presented to clinic with an 18-month history of intermittent bilateral groin and hip pain. Physical examination showed pain only at end range of hip motion bilaterally, but otherwise was completely normal. Radiographs showed bilateral hyperostosis of the issue pubic synchondrosis, or IPS. MRI of the left hip demonstrated a fusiform expansion of the ischiopubic synchondrosis with increased signal intensity in the bone and soft tissues. A diagnosis of Van Neck Autoberg disease was made. Symptoms resolved with conservative management and a follow-up radiograph five years later demonstrated fusion of the right issue pubic synchondrosis. Please look at this image to see these very interesting MRI findings in an unusual presentation. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only my highlighted articles, but all of the articles in the December 2021 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print edition or the online edition, which is available at www.jroom.org. Please watch my interviews with the authors of the highlighted article not only of this month, but of previous months, if you have missed them. 
they are available for viewing at our website and on YouTube. If you have any questions, comments on these highlighted articles or any articles in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. Please listen next month to the January 2022 edition of Editor's Highlights. Please stay healthy and to a good and healthy new year to all of you.